support Black Clock Audio Tales by going to the Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. This month, the month of May, we are doing uh, the space operas Skylark of Space and Skylark 3 by E.E. Smith. Thank you again for listening. And for Radio Free Oleander, we'll be talking about Star Wars, or the Star Wars trilogy, or the Star Wars series, or Star Wars as a phenomena this May. Check out our show notes for where to find us, where to subscribe, where to find out, where to find us on social media, where to suggest stuff, where to say, hey, I was listening to Dracula, and there's a page missing that happened, and I fixed it. Black Clock Audio Tales, the month of May. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Object Compass at Work Prescott, after a sleepless night, joined Seaton and Crane at breakfast. "'What do you make of it, Mr. Prescott?' asked Crane. "'Seaton here thinks it was Duquesne, possibly acting for some foreign power, after our flying machine to use in war. "'I think it was some big industrial concern after our power plant. "'What is your opinion?' "'I haven't any.' replied the great detective after a moment. Either guess may be true, although I am almost positive that Dr. Duquesne has nothing to do with it either way. It was no ordinary burglary, that is certain from Shiro's story. It was done by someone who had exact information of your movements and habits. He chose a time when you were away, probably not so much from fear of you, as because it was only in your absence that he could succeed, as he did in getting all the guards out at once where he could handle them. He was a man with one accomplice, or who worked alone, and who was almost exactly Seaton's size and build. He was undoubtedly an expert, as he blew the safe and searched the whole house without leaving a fingerprint or any other clue, however slight that I can find a thing I have never before seen done in all my experience. "'His size should help in locating him,' declared Crane. "'While there are undoubtedly thousands of men of Dick's six feet one and two-fifths, they are fairly well scattered, are they not?' "'Yes, they are, but his very size only makes it worse. "'I have gone over all the records I could in the short time I have had, and can't find an expert of that class with anywhere near that description. "'How about the third guard, the one who escaped?' asked Seaton. "'He wasn't here. It was his afternoon off, you know, and he said that he wouldn't come back into the job on a bet, that he wasn't afraid of anything ordinary, but he didn't like the looks of things out here. That sounded fishy to me, and I fired him. He may have been the leak, of course.' though I have always found him reliable before. If he did leak, he must have got a whale of a slice for it. He is under constant watch, and if we can ever get anything on him, I will nail him to the cross. But that doesn't help get this affair straightened out. I haven't given up, of course. There are lots of things not tried yet, but I must admit that temporarily, at least, 
I am up a stump. Well, remarked Seaton, that million-dollar reward will bring him in, sure. No honor that ever existed among thieves, or even among the freelances of diplomacy, could stand that strain. I'm not so sure of that, Dick, said Crane. If either one of our ideas is the right one, very few men would know enough about the affair to give pertinent information, and they probably would not live long enough to enjoy the reward very thoroughly. Even a million dollars fails in that case. I rather agree with Mr. Crane, Seaton. If it were an ordinary fare, and I am as sure it is not as the police are that it is, a reward of that size would get us our man within two days. As it is, I doubt very much that the reward will do us any good. I'm afraid that it will never be claimed. Wonder if the Secret Service could help us out. They'd be interested, if it should turn out to be some foreign power. I took it up with the chief himself, just after it happened last night. He doesn't think that it can be a foreign country. He has their agents pretty well spotted, and the only one that could fill the bill, you know a man with that description and with the cold nerve to do the job would be apt to be known, was in San Francisco the time this job was pulled off. The more you talk, the more I am convinced that it was Duquesne himself, declared Seaton positively. He is almost exactly my size and build, is the only man I know of who could do anything with the solution after he got it, and he has nerve enough to do anything. I would like to think it was Duquesne, replied the detective thoughtfully, but I'm afraid we'll have to count him out of it entirely. He has been under the constant surveillance of my best men ever since you mentioned him. We have detectaphones in his rooms, wires on his telephone, and are watching him night and day. He never goes out except to work, never has any except unimportant telephone calls, and the instruments register only the occasional scratching of a match, the rustle of papers, and other noises of a man studying. He is innocent. That may be true, assented Seaton doubtfully, but you want to remember that he knows more about electricity than the guy that invented it, and I'm not sure that he can't talk to a detectaphone and make it say anything he wants it to. Anyway, we can soon settle it. Yesterday I made a special trip down to the Bureau, with some notes as an excuse, to set this object compass on him, taking one of the small instruments from his pocket as he spoke. I watched him a while last night, then fixed an alarm to wake me if the needle moved much, but it pointed steady all night. See, it's moving now. That means he is going to work early, as usual. Now, I'm morally certain that he's mixed up in this thing somewhere, and I'm not convinced that he isn't slipping one over on your men some way. He's a clever devil. I wonder if you wouldn't take this compass and watch him yourself tonight, just on general principles, or let me do it. I'd be glad to. I say tonight, because if he did get the stuff here, he didn't deliver it anywhere last night. It's just a chance, of course, but he may do it tonight. After the compass had been explained to the detective, he gladly consented to the plan, declaring that he would willingly spend the time just to watch such an unheard-of instrument work. After another hour of fruitless discussion, Prescott took his leave, 
saying that he would mount an impregnable guard from that time on. Late that evening, Prescott joined the two men who were watching Duquesne's house. They reported that all was perfectly quiet, as usual. The scientist was in his library, the instruments registering only the usual occasional faint sounds of a man absorbed in study. But after an hour of waiting, and while the microphones made a noise as of rustling papers, the needle of the compass moved. It dipped slowly toward the earth, as though Duquesne were descending into the cellar, but at the same time the shadow of his unmistakable profile was thrown upon the window-shade as he apparently crossed the room. "'Can't you hear him walk?' demanded Prescott. "'No. He has heavy Turkish rugs all over the library, and he always walks very lightly besides.' Prescott watched the needle in amazement as it dipped deeper and deeper, pointing down into the earth almost under his feet, and then behind him, as though Duquesne had walked beneath him. He did not, could not believe it. He was certain that something had gone wrong with the strange instrument in his hand. Nevertheless, he followed the pointing needle. It led him beside Park Road, down the hill, straight toward the long bridge which forms one entrance to Rock Creek Park. Though skeptical, Prescott took no chances, and as he approached the bridge, he left the road and concealed himself behind a clump of trees, from which point of vantage he could see the ground beneath the bridge as well as the roadway. Soon the bridge trembled under the weight of a heavy automobile going toward the city at a high rate of speed. He saw Duquesne, with a roll of papers under his arm, emerge from under the bridge just in time to leap aboard the automobile, which slowed down only enough to enable him to board it in safety. The detective noticed that the car was a Pierce Arrow limousine, a car not common even in Washington, and rushed out to get its number. But the license plates were so smeared with oil and dust that the numbers could not be read by the light of the tail lamp. Glancing at the compass in his hand, he saw that the delicate needle was now pointing steadily at the fleeing car, and all doubts as to the power of the instrument were dispelled. He rejoined his men, informed them that Duquesne had eluded them, and took one of them up the hill to a nearby garage. There he engaged a fast car and set out in pursuit, choosing the path for the chauffeur by means of the compass. His search ended at the residence of Brookings, the general manager of the great World Steel Corporation. Here he dismissed the car and watched the house while his assistant went to bring out the fast motorcycle used by Prescott when high speed was desirable. After four hours, a small car, bearing the license number of a distant state, which was found by subsequent telegraphing to be unknown to the authorities of that state, drove under the porte cochere, and the hidden watcher saw Duquesne, without the papers, step into it. Knowing now what to expect, Prescott drove his racing motorcycle at full speed out to the Park Road Bridge and concealed himself beneath the structure in a position commanding a view of the concrete abutment through which the scientist must have come. Soon he heard a car slow down overhead, heard a few rapid footfalls, and saw the dark form of a large man outlined against the gray face of the abutment. 
he saw the man lift his hand high above his head and saw a black rectangle appear in the gray, engulf the man, and disappear. After a few minutes, he approached the abutment and searched his face with the help of his flashlight. He finally succeeded in tracing the almost imperceptible crack which outlined the door and the concealed button which Duquesne had pressed to open it. He did not press the button, as it might be connected to an alarm. Deep in thought, he mounted his motorcycle and made his way home to get a few hours of sleep before reporting to Crane, who he was scheduled to see at breakfast next morning. Both men were waiting for him when he appeared, and he noticed with pleasure that Shiro, with a heavily bandaged head, was insisting that he was perfectly able to wait on the table instead of breakfasting in bed. He calmly proceeded to serve breakfast in spite of Crane's remonstrances, having ceremoniously ordered out of the kitchen the colored man who had been secured to take his place. "'Well, gentlemen,' the detective began, "'part of the mystery is straightened out. I was entirely wrong, and each of you were partly right.' It was Duquesne, in all probability. It is equally probable that a great company, in this case the World Steel Corporation, is backing him, though I don't believe there is a ghost of a show of ever being able to prove it in law. Your object compass did the trick. He narrated all the events of the previous night. I'd like to send him to the chair for this job, said Seaton, with rising anger. We ought to shoot him anyway, damn him. I'm sorry duels have gone out of fashion, for I can't shoot him offhand the way things are now. I sure wish I could. No, you cannot shoot him, said Crane thoughtfully, and neither can I, worse luck. We are not in his class there, and you must not fight with him either, noting that Seaton's powerful hands had doubled into fists, the knuckles showing white through the tanned skin, though that would be a fight worth watching and I would like to see you give him the beating of his life. A little thing like a beating is not a fraction of what he deserves, and it would show him that we have found him out. No, we must do it legally, or let him entirely alone. You think there is no hope of proving it, Prescott? Frankly, I see very little chance of it. There is always hope, of course, and if that bunch of pirates ever makes a slip, we'll be right there waiting to catch him. While I don't believe in holding out false encouragement, they've never slipped yet. I'll take my men off Duquesne, now that we've linked him up with Steele. It doesn't make any difference, does it, whether he goes to them every night or only once a week? No. Then about all I can do is get everything I can on that Steele crowd, and that is very much like trying to get blood out of a turnip. I intend to keep after them, of course, for I owe them something for killing two of my men here, as well as for other favors they have done me in the past. But don't expect too much. I have tackled them before, and so have police headquarters and even the Secret Service itself, under cover, and all that any of us has ever been able to get is an occasional small fish. We could never land the big fellows. In fact, we have never found the slightest material proof of what we are morally certain is the truth. That world steel is back of a lot of deviltry all over the country. The little fellows who do the work either don't know anything or are afraid to tell. 
I'll see if I can find out what they are doing with the stuff they stole. But I'm not even sure of doing that. You can't plant instruments on that bunch. It would be like trying to stick a pin into a sleeping cat without waking him up. They undoubtedly have one of the best cores of the detectives in the world. You haven't perfected an instrument which enables you to see into a closed room and hear what is going on there, have you? And upon being assured that they had not, he took his leave. Optimistic cuss, ain't he? remarked Seaton. He has cause to be, Dick. World Steel is a soulless corporation, if there ever was one. They have the shrewdest lawyers in the country, and they get away legally with things that are flagrantly illegal, such as freezing out competitors, stealing patents, and the like. Report has it that they do not stop at arson, treason, or murder to attain their ends, but as Prescott said, they never leave any legal proof behind them. Well, we should fret anyway. Of course, a monopoly is what they're after, but they can't form one because they can't possibly get the rest of our solution. Even if they should get it, we can get more. It won't be as easy as this last batch was, since the X was undoubtedly present in some particular lot of platinum in extraordinary quantities. But now that I know exactly what to look for, I can find more. So they can't get their monopoly unless they kill us off. Exactly. Go on. I see you are getting the idea. If we should both conveniently die, they could get the solution from the company and have the monopoly since no one else can handle it. But they couldn't get away with it, Mart, never in a thousand years, even if they wanted to. Of course, I am a small fry, but you are too big a man for even steel to do away with. It can't be done. I'm not so sure of that. Airplane accidents are numerous, and I am an aviator. Also, has it ever occurred to you that the heavy forging for the Skylark, ordered a while ago, are of steel? Seaton paused, dumbfounded, in the act of lighting his pipe. But thanks to your object compass, we are warned, Crane continued evenly. Those forgings are going through the most complete set of tests known to the industry, and if they go into the Skylark at all, it will be after I am thoroughly convinced that they will not give way on our first trip into space. But we can do nothing until the steel arrives, and with the guard Prescott has here now, we are safe enough. Luckily, the enemy knows nothing of the object compass or the explosive, and we must keep them in ignorance. Here and after, not even the guards get a look at anything we do. They sure don't. Let's get busy. Duquesne and Brookings met in conference in a private room of the Perkins Café. What's the good word, doctor? So, so, replied the scientist. The stuff is all they said it was, but we haven't enough of it to build much of a power plant. We can't go ahead with it, anyway, as long as Seaton and Crane have nearly all of their original solution. No, we can't. We must find a way of getting it. I see now that we should have done as you suggested, and taken it before they had warning and put it out of our reach. There is no use holding post-mortems. We have got to get it some way, and everybody that knows anything about that new metal, how to get it or how to handle it, must die. At first, 
it would have been enough to kill Seaton. Now, however, there is no doubt that Crane knows all about it, and he probably has left complete instructions in case he gets killed in an accident. He is the kind that would. We have to keep our eyes open and wipe out those instructions and anyone who has seen them. You see that, don't you? Yes, I'm afraid. That is the only way out. We must have the monopoly, and anyone who might be able to interfere with it must be removed. How has your search for more X prospered? About as well as I expected. We bought up all the platinum wastes we could get, and reworked all the metallic platinum and allied metals we could buy in the open market, and got less than a gram of X out of the whole lot. It's scarcer than radium. Seaton's finding so much of it at once was an accident, pure and simple. It couldn't happen once in a million years. Well, have you any suggestions as to how we can get that solution? No, I haven't thought of anything but that very thing ever since I found that they had hidden it, and I can't yet see any good way of getting it. My forte is direct action, and that fails in this case, since no amount of force or torture could make Crane reveal the hiding place of the solution. It's probably in the safest safe deposit vault in the country. He wouldn't carry the key on him, probably wouldn't have it in the house. Killing Seaton or Crane or both of them is easy enough, but it probably wouldn't get us the solution, as I have no doubt that Crane has provided for everything. Probably he has, but if he should disappear, the stuff would have to come to light, or the Seaton Crane Company might start their power plant. In that case, we probably could get it. Possibly, you mean. That method is too slow to suit me, though. It would take months, perhaps years, and would be devilishly uncertain to boot. They'll know something is in the wind, and the stuff will be surrounded by every safeguard they can think of. There must be some better way than that, but I haven't been able to think of it. Neither have I, but your phrase, direct action, gives me an idea. You say that that method has failed. What do you think of trying indirect action in the shape of Perkins, who is indirection personified? Bring him in. He may be able to figure out something. Perkins was called in, and the main phases of the situation laid before him. The three men sat in silence for many minutes while the crafty strategist studied the problem. Finally he spoke. There's only one way, gentlemen. We must get a handle on either Seaton or Crane strong enough to make them give up their bottle of dope, their plans, and everything. Handle? interrupted Duquesne. You talk like a fool. You can't get anything on either of them. You misunderstand me, doctor. You can get a handle of some kind on any living man. Not necessarily in his past, you understand. I know that anything like that is out of the question in this case, but in his future. With some men it is money, with others power, with others fame, with others women or some woman, and so on down the list. What can we use here? Money is out of the question. So are power and fame, as they already have both in plain sight. It seems to me that women would be our best chance. Ha, snorted the chemist. Crane has been chased by all the women of three continents so long that he's woman-proof. Seaton is worse. 
He's engaged, and wouldn't realize that a woman was on his trail, even if you could find a better-looking one to work on him than the girl he's engaged to, which would be a hard job. Cleopatra herself couldn't swing that order. Engaged? That makes it as simple as A, B, C. Simple? In the devil's name, how? Easiest falling off a log. You have enough of the dope to build a space car from those plans, haven't you? Yes. What has that to do with the case? It has everything to do with it. I would suggest that we build such a car and use it to carry off the girl. After we have her safe, we could tell Seaton that she is marooned on some distant planet and that she will be returned to Earth only after all the solution, all notes, plans, and everything pertaining to the new metal are surrendered. That will bring him, and Crane will consent. Then afterwards, Dr. Seaton may go away indefinitely, and if desirable, Mr. Crane may accompany him. But suppose they try to fight, asked Brookings. Perkins slid down into his chair in deep thought, his pale eyes under half-closed lids darting here and there, his stubby fingers worrying his watch-chain restlessly. "'Who is the girl?' he asked at last. "'Dorothy Vaneman, the daughter of the lawyer. She's that auburn-haired beauty that the papers were so full of when she came out last year.' "'Vaneman is a director of the Seton Crane Company. That makes it still better. If they show fight and follow us, that beautiful car we are making for them will collapse, and they will be out of the way.' Vaneman, as Seaton's prospective father-in-law and member of his company, probably knows something about the secret, maybe all of it. With his daughter in a space car supposedly out in space, and Seaton and Crane out of the way, Vaneman would listen to reason and let go of the solution, particularly as nobody knows much about it except Seaton and Crane. "'That strikes me as a perfectly feasible plan,' said Brookings, but you wouldn't really take her to another planet, would you? Why not use an automobile or an airplane and tell Seaton that it was a space car? I wouldn't advise that. He might not believe it, and they might make a lot of trouble. It must be a real space car, even if we don't take her out of the city. To make it more impressive, you should take her in plain sight of Seaton. No, that would be too dangerous, as I have found out from the police that Seaton has a permit to carry arms, and I know that he is one of the fastest men with a pistol in the whole country. Do it in plain sight of her folks, say, or a crowd of people, being masked, of course, and dressed in an aviator's suit with the hood and goggles on. Take her straight up out of sight, then hide her somewhere until Seaton listens to reason. I know that he will listen, but if he doesn't, you might let him see you start out to visit her. He'll be sure to follow you in their rotten car. As soon as he does that, he's our meat. But that raises the question of who's going to drive the car. I am, replied Duquesne. I will need some help, though, as at least one man must stay with the girl while I bring the car back. We don't want to let anybody else in on this if we can help it, cautioned Brookings. You could go along, couldn't you, Perkins? Is it safe? Absolutely, answered Duquesne. They have everything worked out to the Queen's taste. That's all right, then. I'll take the trip. 
also turning to Brookins. It will help in another little thing we are doing, the Spencer affair. Haven't you got that stuff away from her yet, after having her locked up in that hellhole for two months? asked Brookings. No, she's stubborn as a mule. We have given her the third degree time after time, but it's no use. What is this? asked Duquesne. Deviltry in the main office? Yes, this Margaret Spencer claims that we swindled her father out of an invention and indirectly caused his death. She secured a position with us in search of evidence. She is an expert stenographer, and showed such ability that she was promoted until she became my secretary. Our detectives must have been asleep, as she made away with some photographs and drawings before they caught her. She has no real evidence, of course, but she might cause trouble with a jury, especially as she is one of the best-looking women in Washington. Perkins is holding her until she returns the stolen articles. Why can't you kill her off? She cannot be disposed of until we know where the stuff is, because she says, and Perkins believes, that the evidence will show up in her effects. We must do something about her soon, as the search for her is dying down, and she will be given up for dead. What's the idea about her and the space car? If the car proves reliable, we might actually take her out into space and give her the choice between telling and walking back. She has nerve enough here on Earth to die before giving it up, but I don't believe any human being would be game to go it alone on a strange world. She'd wilt. I believe you're right, Perkins. Your suggestions are the best way out. Don't you think so, Doctor? Yes, I don't see how we can fail. We're sure to win either way. You are prepared for trouble afterwards, of course. Certainly, but I don't think there will be much trouble. They can't possibly link the three of us together. They aren't wise to you, are they, Doctor? Not a chance, sneered Duquesne. They ran themselves ragged, trying to get something on me, but they couldn't do it. They have given me up as a bad job. I am still as careful as ever, though. I am merely a pure scientist in the Bureau of Chemistry. All three laughed, and Perkins left the room. The talk then turned to the construction of the space car. It was decided to rush the work on it, so Duquesne could familiarize himself with its operation, but not to take any steps in the actual abduction until such time as Seaton and Crane were ready to take their first flight, so that they could pursue the abductors in case Seaton was still obdurate after a few days of his fiancée's absence. Duquesne insisted that the car should mount a couple of heavy guns to destroy the pursuing car if the faulty members should happen to hold together long enough to carry it out into space. After a long discussion, in which every detail of the plan was carefully considered, the two men left the restaurant by different exits. End of chapter 6 Maine. The Trial Voyage The great steel forgings, which were to form the framework of the Skylark, finally arrived and were hauled into the testing shed. There, behind closed doors, Crane inspected every square inch of the massive members with a lens, but could find nothing wrong. Still unsatisfied, he fitted up an electrical testing apparatus 
in order to search out flaws which might be hidden beneath the surface. This device revealed flaws in every piece, and after thoroughly testing each one and mapping out the imperfections, he turned to Seaton with a grave face. Worse than useless, every one of them. They are barely strong enough to stand shipment. They figured that we would go slowly until we were well out of the atmosphere, then put on power, then something would give way and we would never come back. That's about the right dope, I guess. But now, what will we do? We can't cancel without letting them know we're on to them, and we certainly can't use this stuff. No, but we will go ahead and build this ship anyway, so that they will think that we are going ahead with it. At the same time, we will build another one, about four times this size, in absolute secrecy, and... What do you mean, absolute secrecy? How can you keep steel castings and forgings of that size secret from steel? I know a chap who owns and operates a small steel plant, so insignificant relatively, that he has not yet been bought out or frozen out by steel. I was able to do him a small favor once, and I am sure that he will be glad to return it. We will not be able to oversee the work. That is a drawback. We can get MacDougall to do it for us, however, and with him doing the work, we can rest assured that there will be nothing off-color. Even steel couldn't buy him. MacDougall, the man who installed the intercontinental plant, he wouldn't touch a little job like this with a pole. I think he would. He and I are rather friendly, and after I tell him about it, he will be glad to take it. It means building the first interplanetary vessel, you know. Wouldn't Steele follow him up if he should go to work on a mysterious project? He's too big to hide. No, he will go camping. He often does. I have gone with him several times when we were completely out of touch with civilization for two months at a time. Now, about the ship we want. Have you any ideas? It will cost more than our entire capital. That is easily arranged. We do not care how much it costs. Seaton began to object to drawing so heavily upon the resources of his friend, but was promptly silenced. I told you when we started, Crane said flatly, that your solution and your ideas are worth far more than half a million. In fact, they are worth more than everything I have. No more talk of the money end of it, Dick. All right, we'll build a regular go-getter, four times the size. She'll be a bearcat, Mart. I'm glad this one is on the fritz. She'll carry a 200-pound bar. Zowie, watch our smoke. And say, why wouldn't it be a good idea to build an attractor, a thing like an object compass, but mounting a 10-pound bar instead of a needle, so that if they chase us in space, we can reach out and grab them. We might mount a machine gun in each quadrant, shooting explosive bullets through pressure gaskets in the walls. We should have something for defense. I don't like the possibility of having that gang of pirates after us and nothing to fight back with except thought waves. Right, we will do both those things, but we should make the power plant big enough to avert any possible contingency. Say, 400 pounds, and we should have everything in duplicate, from power plant to push buttons.
I don't think that's necessary, Mart. Don't you think that's carrying caution to the extremes? Possibly, but I would rather be a live coward than a dead hero, wouldn't you? You chirped it, old scout. I sure would. I never did like the looks of that old guy with the sigh, and I would hate to let Duquesne feel that he had slipped something over on me at my own game. Besides, I've developed a lot of caution myself lately. Double she is, with a skin of four-foot Norwegian armor. Let's get busy. They made the necessary alteration in the plans, and in a few days work was begun upon the huge steel shell in the little mountain steel plant. The work was done under the constant supervision of the great MacDougall, by men who had been in his employ for years and who were all above suspicion. While it was being built, Seaton and Crane employed a force of men and went ahead with the construction of the space car in the testing shed. While they did not openly slight the work, nearly all of their time was spent in the house, perfecting the many essential things which were to go into the real Skylark. There was the attractor, for which they had to perfect a special sighting apparatus so that it could act in any direction, and yet would not focus upon the ship itself, nor anything it contained. There were many other things. It was in this work that the strikingly different temperaments and abilities of the two men were most clearly revealed. Seaton strode up and down the room, puffing great volumes of smoke from his hot and reeking briar, suggesting methods and ideas, his keen mind finding the way over, around, or through the apparently insuperable obstacles which beset their path. Crane, seated calmly at the drafting table, occasionally inhaling a mouthful of smoke from one of his specially made cigarettes, mercilessly tore Seaton's suggestions to shreds, pointing out their weaknesses, proving his points with his cold, incisive reasoning, and his slide-rule calculations of factors, stresses, and strains. Seaton, in turn, would find a remedy for every defect, and finally, the idea complete and perfect, Crane would impale it upon the point of his drafting pencil and spread it in every detail upon the paper before him, while Seaton's active mind leaped to the next problem. Not being vitally interested in the thing being built in the shed, they did not know that to the flawed members were being attached faulty plates by imperfect welding. Even if they had been interested, they could not have found the poor workmanship by any ordinary inspection, for it was being done by a picked crew of experts picked by Perkins. But to make things even, Perkins' crew did not know that the peculiar instruments installed by Seaton and Crane, of which their foreman took many photographs, were not real instruments, and were made only near enough like them to pass inspection. They were utterly useless in design and function far different from the real instruments intended for the Skylark. Finally, the last dummy instrument was installed in the worthless space car, which the friends referred to between themselves as the Cripple, a name which Seaton soon changed to Old Crip. The construction crew was dismissed after Crane had let the foreman overhear a talk between Seaton and himself, in which they decided not to start for a few days, 
as they had some final experiments to make. Prescott reported that Steele had relaxed its vigilance and was apparently waiting for the first flight. About the same time, word was received from MacDougall that the real Skylark was ready for the finishing touches. A huge triplane descended upon Crane Field and was loaded to its capacity with strange-looking equipment. When it left, Seaton and Crane went with it to make the final tests before the first flight, leaving a heavy guard over the house and the testing shed. A few nights later, in inky blackness, a huge shape descended rapidly in front of the shed, whose ponderous doors opened to receive it and closed quickly after it. The Skylark moved lightly and easily as a waft feather, betraying its thousands of tons of weight only by the hole it made in the hard-beaten earth of the floor as it settled to rest. Opening one of the heavy doors, Seaton and Crane sprang out into the darkness. Dorothy and her father, who had been informed that the Skylark was to be brought home that night, were waiting. Seaton caught up his sweetheart in one mighty arm and extended his hand past her to Vaneman, who seized it in both of his own. Upon the young man's face was the look of a victorious king returning from conquest. For a few minutes, disconnected exclamations were all that any of the party could utter. Then Seaton, loosening slightly his bear's hold upon Dorothy, spoke. "'She flies,' he cried exultantly. "'She flies, dearest, like a ray of light for speed, and like a bit of thistle-down for lightness. We've been around the moon.' "'Around the moon?' cried the two amazed visitors. "'So soon?' asked Vaneman. "'When did you start?' "'Almost an hour ago,' replied Crane readily. He had already taken out his watch. His voice was calm, his face quiet, but to those who knew him best, a deeper resonance in his voice and a deeper blue sparkle in his eyes betrayed his emotion. Both inventors were moved more than they could have told by their achievement, by the complete success of the great space cruiser upon which they had labored for months with all the power of their marvelous intellects. Seaton stood now at the summit of his pride. No recognition by the masses, no applause by the multitudes, no praise even from the upper ten of his own profession could equal for him the silent adulation of the two before him. Dorothy's exquisite face was glorified as she looked at her lover, her eyes wonderful as they told him how high he stood above all others in her world, how much she loved him. Seeing that look, that sweet face, more beautiful than ever in this, his hour of triumph, that perfect adorable body, Seaton forgot the others, and a more profound exaltation than that brought on by his flight filled his being. Humble thankfulness that he was the man to receive the untold treasure of her great giving. Every bit of mechanism we had occasion to use worked perfectly, Crane stated proudly. We did not find it necessary to change any of our apparatus, and we hope to make a longer flight soon. The hour we took on this trip might easily have been only a few minutes, for the Lark did not even begin to pick up speed. Shiro looked at Crane with an air of utter devotion and bowed until his head approached the floor. Sir, he said in his stilted English, 
Honorable Skylark shall be marvelous wonder. If permitting, I shall luxuriate in preparing suitable refreshment. The permission granted, he trotted away into the house, and the travelers invited their visitors to inspect the new craft. Crane and the older man climbed through the circular doorway, which was at an elevation of several feet above the ground. Seaton and Dorothy exchanged a brief but enthusiastic caress before he lifted her lightly up to the opening and followed her up a short flight of stairs. Although she knew what to expect from her lover's descriptions and from her own knowledge of old Crip, which she had seen many times, she caught her breath in amazement as she stood up and looked about the brilliantly lighted interior of the great Sky Rover. It was such a sight as had never before been seen upon Earth. She saw a spherical shell of hardened steel armor plate, fully forty feet in diameter, though its true shape was not readily apparent from the inside, as it was divided into several compartments by horizontal floors or decks. In the exact center of the huge shell was a spherical network of enormous steel beams. Inside this structure could be seen a similar network which mounted upon universal bearings, was free to revolve in any direction. This inner network was filled with machinery surrounding a shining copper cylinder. From the outer network radiated six mighty supporting columns. These, branching as they neared the hull of the vessel, supported the power plant and steering apparatus in the center, and so strengthened the shell that the whole structure was nearly as strong as a solid steel ball. She noticed that the floor, perhaps eight feet below the center, was heavily upholstered in leather and did not seem solid, and that the same was true of the dozen or more seats, she could not call them chairs, which were built in various places. She gazed with interest at the two instrument boards, upon which flashed tiny lights and the highly polished plate glass, condensite, and metal of many instruments, the use of which she could not guess. After a few minutes of silence, both visitors began to ask questions, and Seaton showed them the principal features of the novel craft. Crane accompanied them in silence, enjoying their pleasure, glorying in the mighty vessel. Seaton called attention to the great size and strength of the lateral supporting columns one of which was immediately above their heads, and then led them over to the vertical column which pierced the middle of the floor. Enormous as the laterals had seemed, it appeared puny in comparison with this monster of fabricated steel. Seaton explained that the two verticals were many times stronger than the four laterals, as the center of gravity of the ship had been made lower than its geometrical center, so that the apparent motion of the vessel and therefore the power of the bar would usually be merely vertical. Resting one hand caressingly upon the huge column, he exultantly explained that these members were the last word in strength, made up of many separate I-beams and angles of the strongest known special steel, latticed and braced until no conceivable force could make them yield a millimeter. "'But why such strength?' asked the lawyer doubtfully. This column alone would hold up the Brooklyn Bridge. To hold down the power plant so that the bar won't tear through the ship when we cut her loose, replied Seaton. Have you any idea how fast this bird can fly? 
Well, I have heard you speak of traveling with the velocity of light, but that is overdrawn, isn't it? Not very much. Our figures show that with this 400-pound bar, pointing to the copper cylinder in the exact center of the inner sphere, we could develop not only the velocity of light, but an acceleration equal to that velocity, were it not for the increase in mass at high velocities, as shown by Einstein and others. We can't go very fast near the Earth, of course, as the friction of the air would melt the whole works in a few minutes. Until we get out of the atmosphere, our speed will be limited by the ability of steel to withstand melting by the friction of the air to somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five thousand miles per hour. But out in space, we can develop any speed we wish up to that of light as a limit. I studied physics a little in my youth. Wouldn't the mere force of such an acceleration as you mention flatten you on the floor and hold you there? And any sudden jar would certainly kill you. There can't be any sudden jar. This is a special floor, you notice. It is mounted on long, extremely heavy springs to take up any possible jar. Also, whenever we are putting on power, we won't try to stand up our legs would crimple up like strings. We ride securely strapped into those special seats which are mounted the same as the floor, only a whole lot more so. As to the acceleration... That word means picking up speed, doesn't it? interrupted Dorothy. The rate of picking up speed, corrected Seaton. That is, if you are going 40 miles an hour one minute and 50 the next minute, your acceleration would be 10 miles per hour per minute. See, it's acceleration that makes you feel funny when you start up or down in an elevator. Then riding in this thing will be like starting up in an elevator so that your heart sinks into your boots and you can't breathe? Yes, only worse. We will pick up speed faster and keep on doing it. Seriously, interrupted the lawyer, do you think that the human body can stand any such acceleration as that? I don't know. We're going to find out by starting out slowly and increasing our acceleration to as much as we can stand. I see, Vaneman replied. But how are you going to steer her? How do you keep permanent reference points, since there are no directions in space? That was our hardest problem, explained Seaton. But Martin solved it perfectly. See the power plant up there? Notice those big supporting rings and bearings? Well, the power plant is entirely separate from the ship, as it is inside that inner sphere, about which the outer sphere and the ship itself are free to revolve in any direction. No matter how much the ship rolls and pitches, as she is bound to do every time we come near enough to any star or planet to be influenced by its gravitation, the bar stays where it is pointed. Those six big jackets in the outer sphere, on the six sides of the bar, cover six pairs of gyroscope wheels, weighing several tons each, turning at a terrific speed in a vacuum. The gyroscopes keep the whole outer sphere in exactly the same position as long as they are kept turning, and afford us not only permanent planes of reference, but also a solid foundation in those planes which can be used in pointing the bar. The bar can be turned instantly to any direction, whatever, by special electrical instruments on the boards. You see, 
the outer sphere stays immovably fixed in that position, with the bar at liberty to turn in any direction inside it, and the ship at liberty to do the same thing outside it. Now we will show you where we sleep, Seaton continued. We have eight rooms, four below and four above, leading the way to a narrow, steep steel stairway and down into a very narrow hall, from either side of which two doors opened. This is my room. The adjoining one is Mart's. Shiro sleeps across the hall. The rest of the rooms are for our guests on future trips. Sliding back the door, he switched on the light and revealed a small but fully appointed bedroom, completely furnished with everything necessary, yet everything condensed into the least possible space. The floor, like the one above, was of cushioned leather supported by springs. The bed was a modification of the special seats already referred to. Opening another sliding door, he showed them an equally complete and equally compact bathroom. You see, we have all the comforts of home. This bathroom, however, is practical only when we have some force downward, either gravitation or our own acceleration. The same reasoning accounts for the handrails you see everywhere on board. Drifting in space, you know, there is no weight, and you can't walk. You must pull yourself around. If you tried to take a step, you would bounce up and hit the ceiling and stay there. That is why the ceilings are so well padded. And if you tried to wash your face, you would throw water all over the place, and it would float around in the air instead of falling to the floor. As long as we can walk, we can use the bathroom. If I should want to wash my face while we were drifting, I just press this button here, and the pilot will put on enough acceleration to make the correct use of water possible. There are a lot of surprising things about a trip into space. I don't doubt it a bit, and I'm simply wild to go for a ride with you. When will you take me, Dicky? asked Dorothy eagerly. Very soon, Dottie, as soon as we get her in perfect running condition. You shall be the first to ride with us, I promise you. Where do you cook and eat? How do you see out? How about the air and water supply? How do you keep warm or cool, as the case may be? asked the girl's father, as though he were cross-examining a witness. Shiro has a galley on the main floor, and tables fold up into the wall of the main compartment. The passengers see out by sliding back steel panels, which normally cover the windows. The pilot can see in any direction from his seat at the instrument board by means of special instruments, something like periscopes. The windows are made of optical glass, similar to that used in the largest telescopes. They are nearly as thick as the hull, and have a compressive resistance almost equal to that of armor steel. Although so thick, they are crystal clear, and a speck of dust on the outer surface is easily seen. We have water enough in tanks to last us three months, or indefinitely, if we should have to be careful, as we can automatically distill and purify all our wastewater, recovering absolutely pure H2O. We have compressed air, also in tanks, but we need very little, as the air is constantly being purified. Also, we have oxygen-generating apparatus aboard, in case we should run short. And to keep warm, we have electric heating coils run by the practically inexhaustible power 
of a small metal bar. If we get too near the sun and get too warm, we have a refrigerating machine to cool us off. Anything else? You'd better give up, Dad, laughingly advised his daughter. You've thought of everything, haven't you, Dick? Mart has, I think. This is all his doing, you know. I wouldn't have thought of a tenth of it myself. I must remind you, young folks, said the older man, glancing at his watch, that it is very late and high time for Dottie and me to be going home. We would like to stay and see the rest of it, but you know we must be away from here before daylight. As they went into the house, Vaneman asked, What does the other side of the moon look like? I have always been curious about it. We were not able to see much, replied Crane. It was too dark, and we did not take time to explore it. But from what we could see by means of our searchlight, it is very much like this side, the most barren and desolate place imaginable. After we go to Mars, we intend to explore the moon thoroughly. Mars, then, is your first goal? When do you intend to start? We haven't decided definitely, probably in a day or two. Everything is ready now. As the Vanemans had come out in the streetcar, in order to attract as little attention as possible, Seaton volunteered to take them home in one of Crane's cars. As they bade Crane good night after enjoying Shiro's suitable refreshment, the lawyer took the chauffeur's seat, motioning his daughter and Seaton into the closed body of the car. As soon as they had started, Dorothy turned in the embrace of her lover's arm. Dick, she said fiercely, I would have been worried sick if I had known that you were way off there. I knew it, sweetheart. That's why I didn't tell you we were going. We both knew the Skylark was perfectly safe, but I knew that you would worry about our first trip. Now that we have been to the moon, you won't be uneasy when we go to Mars, will you, dear? I can't help it, boy. I will be afraid that something terrible has happened every minute. Won't you take me with you? Then, if anything happens, it will happen to both of us, and that is as it should be. You know that I wouldn't want to keep on living if anything should happen to you. He put both arms around her as his reply, and pressed his cheek to hers. Dorothy, sweetheart, I know exactly how you feel. I feel the same way myself. I'm awfully sorry, dear, but I can't do it. I know the machine is safe, but I've got to prove it to everybody else before I take you on a long trip with me. Your father will agree with me that you ought not to go, on the first trip or two anyway, and besides, what would Madame Grundy say? Well, there is a way, she began, and he felt her face turn hot. His arms tightened around her, and his breath came fast. I know it, sweetheart, and I would like nothing better in the world than to be married today and take our honeymoon in the Skylark. But I can't do it. After we come back from the first long trip, we will be married just as soon as you say ready. And after that, we will always be together wherever I go. But I can't take even the millionth part of a chance with anything as valuable as you are. You see that, don't you, Dottie? I suppose so, she returned disconsolately. But you'll make it a short trip, for my sake. I know. I won't rest a minute until you get back. I promise you that we won't be gone more than four days. Then, for the greatest honeymoon that ever was, and they clung together in the dark body of the car, each busy 
with solemn and beautiful thoughts of the happiness to come. They soon reached their destination. As they entered the house, Dorothy made one more attempt. Dad, Dick is just too perfectly mean. He says he won't take me on the first trip. If you were going out there, wouldn't Mother want to go along too? After listening to Seaton, he gave his decision. Dick is right, kitten. He must make the long trip first. Then, after the machine is proved reliable, you may go with him. I can think of no better way of spending a honeymoon. It will be a new one, at least. And you needn't worry about the boys getting back safely. I might not trust either of them alone, but together they are invincible. Good night, children. I wish you success, Dick, as he turned away. Seaton took a lover's leave of Dorothy and went into the lawyer's study, taking an envelope from his pocket. Mr. Vaneman, he said in a low voice, we think the steel crowd is still camping on our trail. We are ready for them, with a lot of stuff that they never heard of. But in case anything goes wrong, Martin has written between the lines of this legal form, in invisible ink, A36, exactly how to get possession of all our notes and plans, so that the company can go ahead with everything. With those directions, any chemist can find and use the stuff safely. Please put this envelope in the safest place you can think of, and then forget it, unless they get both Crane and me. There's about one chance in a million of their doing that, but Mart doesn't gamble on even that chance. He is right, Dick. I believe that you can outwit them in any situation, but I will keep this paper where no one except myself can ever see it, Nevertheless, good night, son, and good luck. The same to you, sir, and thank you. Good night. End of chapter 7